It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. I can't remember the last time we were all this happy to say Happy New Year, Happy 2021. This is the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham, and this is the time of year. Actually, we usually did this a week earlier, so this is the time of year now that I'm going to talk about our best interview moments of 2020, in no particular order, by the way. Just take a look back at some of the amazing guests that I had this year, some of the fun, some of my favorite moments of the past year, and some of my favorite guests, and, and some of yours as well, based on the reaction over the past year. And again, thank you so much for supporting the show as much as you have. Hopefully, you will support this week's sponsor, The Faraway Stories from Amazon Originals Publishing, and boy, I'm going to tell you about it. There, there's five stories, but I'm going to talk about a really, really funny and interesting one this week for sure. You're going to love them all, but I think you'll love this one especially and a great way to kick off the new year. But And by the way, also going to talk about Wonder Woman 1984. That's right, going to sneak a review onto this week's Best of Show as well. How about that? But let's go ahead and get started. One of my first favorite interview moments of 2020 had to be when, remember, it was a virtual San Diego Comic-Con this year, right? It was it was an at-home event, just like pretty much every other con in 2020. So I got a chance to talk to Amalia Holm from Motherland Fort Salem and a very particular scene from season one that we talked about that was one of my favorites. Turns out it's one of her favorites as well. Check it out. One of my favorite scenes, Amalia, from season one was when Scylla realizes that she's eating glass when she's in, when she's in captivity and she just kind of spits it out and she smiles. I was like, oh, that is that is a bad move right there. So did you have a favorite scene from season one? Oh, well, that's, that's one of them. It's so hard to decide one, but that was so much fun, too, especially because it was with the amazing Lynn Renee and Demetra McKinney and um, the wonderful actors who play the biddies as well. So it was just, such a fun day on set and to play around with that morbid humor of Scylla regarding the torture and how to deal with that and to use humor as a defense mechanism and also she she's very I mean she's so intimidated by General Alder someone who's been her antagonist or like yeah since, since she was a child it's the one person um, that's described to her as an equivalent of like the darkest lord. <laughs> yeah, that was so much fun to play with all those nuances in that scene. So I, I think I have to go with you on that one. This is Christine Adams from Black Lightning, and you're listening to the Down and Dirty Podcast. So I definitely think one of the ways that we're going to remember 2020 is the year of social distancing and all this other stuff that we've had to do this year. And I got a chance to talk to Amy Garcia from Lucifer and you know how much of a hugger that Ella is so I had to ask her you know how do you think Ella would do with this whole you know quarantine situation here's what she said now Amy it's been a crazy year a lot of things in the world are very different right now what I need to know is how could Ella survive in a world without being able to hug almost everyone all the time <laughs> oh I know it's funny because I'm you know I'm Mexican I'm Puerto Rican and I I love to get up in there. You know, we have a we have a term in Spanish called a papachat. And a papachat means to just like squeeze with love and, and to just hug and, and kiss and I I love to do that. You know, I love to do a papachat and it you know, the social distancing is very not Latin. 
son at Latin. So uh, it's been, it's definitely been challenging for me personally. I miss my friends. I miss my family, but obviously I'm trying to be socially responsible and, and quarantine and wear masks everywhere. If I, if I need to go out to grocery shop or whatever. So I don't know. I think Ella uh, would probably, you know, I think she's writing like a sci-fi novel. I think it was, you know, established in season two. So she'd probably finish that one. Yes. Already write the sequel throw herself into work. She'd probably watch like forensic files over and over again, you know, catch up on like predator. And like, <laughs> I feel like she would just dance. I think she's probably a big dancer and would do dance videos and obviously do like, you know, TikTok And, and I don't know. I think, I think it would, she would probably learn another language. I mean, she speaks English, Spanish, French, Klingon, a little bit of Portuguese. So, you know, she'd probably pick up another language or two. But uh, it might not be pretty. I don't know. Someone like Ella, she's got way too ener- too much energy for her own good. So I-, I don't know if she'd be able to survive, you know, isolation. <laughs> hey, I'm Trey Romano from DC's Stargirl, and you're listening to Down and Nerdy Podcast. 2020 was certainly a great year for animation, animated series. And one that was especially amazing was The Liberator from Netflix, a World War II story that was absolutely stunning. And I got a chance to talk to the guy who played Felix Sparks himself, Bradley James, about his role and how visually striking in this trioscope technology. And here's what he had to say about that. I want to talk about the fact that this series is going to be unlike anything that we've ever seen before, literally, because what was it like, actually, when you first saw the finished trioscope product? And were there any differences while you were filming to tackle that first bit, that when I first saw the trioscope effect, I saw it in stills. Greg Yonkaitis, the director, had shown me stills. And I noticed straight away that it is a very different experience seeing it in a still than it is to when you see a moving image. And I didn't really get a, an idea of what it, what it was. I liked the look of it, but I didn't really get a sense of the movement, a sense of the life that was, was what I was looking at. Then he showed me a little snippet. We met for lunch and he showed me a little snippet and the details mm-hmm. that were in there blew me away. I'm talking about dust particles in sunbeams. Yep. Um, I, it was beyond anything that I expected. And I'd seen the show edited without all the trioscope, without any of that put on it. And I, I was blown away by that because the, the story grabbed me. I, I, I've always been, I suppose, quite vocal about how much I love the script from the very second I, I picked it up. And that was brought to fruition in this version of the show that was basically like watching a play in a way. And I thought to myself, if this works just as us essentially being on a, on a, on a stage, I can't imagine what it's going to be like when the trioscope comes in. And then as, as soon as I saw it, it blew me away. And the trailer... I'll probably repeat myself a few times over the course of the next few weeks. I was bawling my eyes out, James. Mm-hmm. When I me too, me too. All trailer. There's a resonance in there to uh, something that Felix says at the end. And he says, my darling Mary, you hear my voice catch already. Yeah, as I, there it is, yeah. My darling Mary, if ever I go uh, silent, even when I'm, if, if ever I seem to leave you, even when I'm right, right beside you, you'll know where I am. And there was a huge commonality between those lines. I carried them the whole way through the shoot because I knew that everything that Felix was going through 
would lead to the rest of his life having those moments where he would be back there at a, at a moment's notice. And there was there was a commonality with so many accounts that I was made that I that I researched and uh, you know watched veterans speak about their experiences, and there there was always some version of that that they spoke of. It wasn't the same wording or what have you, but it, it seemed to be so common, so familiar with people. And so when that came up in the trailer, I was a mess. I was a mess, James. I, I'm, I'm, I'm pleased no one was around me because it would have been about <laughs> uh, Thankfully, I was by myself. This is Patrick Megan. I'm an executive producer at Family Guy and a writer at She Kills. And you're listening to the Down and Nerdy podcast. So one of the other things we had in this crazy year that was 2020 were networks kind of scrambling for programming because of all of the shutdowns. And that kind of led to L.A.'s finest being on Fox. And one of the guys you probably recognized from that show was Ryan McPartland, who played awesome on Chuck. So when I got a chance to talk to him about L.A.'s finest, how could I not ask him about Chuck and maybe a potential Easter egg in L.A.'s finest? Let's hear from him. Now, you've been talking about the writers a lot, and they definitely are great. As a matter of fact, when I talked to Brandon Margolis and Brandon Saunier, we talked about Easter eggs from Bad Boys being in the show, and they even talked about how there's going to be a Ghostbusters Easter egg involving Ernie Hudson later on. So, you know, my mind starts to wonder, Ryan, and I can't help but wonder, you know, could we have an awesome Chuck Easter egg in a future episode, maybe? I'm just saying. Well, I know the guys dig Chuck. So if they put an Easter egg in there and didn't tell me, they, they easily could have because, you know, I'm always very aware of how I use the word awesome. It, it's it's mm-hmm. something that I don't throw around lightly as another character. So I don't, I intentionally don't use that word. So if they did, they haven't even told me yet. So it'll be a surprise to me when I watch the episode and go, oh, okay. All right, I see what you did there. <laughs> so they totally could have and not even like, and maybe assume that I'd catch it. But I'm on the fifth season of Chuck right now. We have two more episodes to go with my boys. And I have a whole new appreciation for it. I, I can't even tell you how much I love that show and how much, how great it is to watch with kids of a certain age. Hey, this is Nelson Lee from DC Stargirl, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Unfortunately, this year in 2020, we also saw some cancellations of some series that were, quite frankly, gone too soon. One of those was Vagrant Queen from Sci-Fi, and I got a chance to talk to Adrian Ray, who played Alita on the show. And you know there was that budding romance between Alita and Amay, and I had to ask her, you know, hey, what's the deal here? Is, is the window closed? What's going on? So that was one of our best moments of 2020. Give it a listen. Adrian, speaking of Amay, anyone with eyes can see that there's an obvious chemistry between her and Alita. We also saw in this past week's episode, though, that Amay, you know, might have strayed a little bit, had some eyes for somebody else. So do you think that Alita's kind of waited too long to make her move? I think Alita's, yeah, she needs to say something. Like, I think that when they're engaging, Amay's open and she's just like, yeah, if you just say it, I'm here. And Alita's like, I ain't gonna say it. So, um, I, I do, I think that she's, she's, she needs to go on and say it, but I don't know if she will because of all the layers and things that she has going on with her. But there's definitely chemistry there. She definitely gets lost in her eyes whenever they speak. And I would say that the key moments when you see Alita and Amay interacting, mm. look at um, Alita when Amay's not looking at her. I know, exactly. It's like, come yeah. on, it's right there. What are you doing? <laughs> and, and she, like, 
in the fire pit scene, you kind of see, you know, for the first time, Alita's like kind of she felt jealousy, and I she's never felt that in her life. I thought that was the moment right there. I'm like, okay, finally, it's this yeah. finally going to happen. We're good. And then she gets up and walks away. I'm like, no, what are you doing? Well, no. Yeah. She's like, oh, time for bed. <laughs> I mean, that was the perfect was moment. So you got the fire, you got the the moonlight, the atmosphere, or however many moons are up there. It seemed like that, that was, was the time. <laughs> it did. However many moons are up there. <laughs> yes, it felt like the perfect time. And it's like both of them are in the same book, but they're never on the same page for some reason. Well, she needs to start Emotionally. reading ahead. Is what needs to happen. <laughs> She's got to start reading ahead a little bit. I we agree. gotta We got to make this happen. <laughs> I agree. I hope you're enjoying some of our best moments of 2020 interview-wise. Going to take a little bit of a break from that now to talk about Wonder Woman 1984, my spoiler-filled review of the theatrical HBO Max release of Wonder Woman 84 is next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. My name is uh, Liam Sharp. I draw Wonder Woman. I co-founded Mayfire, and I'm a dear and close friend of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Transporting our way back to the 1980s, 1984 to be exact, because I'm sure you spent part of your holiday watching Wonder Woman 1984. I did too, so I guess it's safe now. It's been a week, okay? Spoiler-filled review coming up here of Wonder Woman 1984. And I just want to address this right now. This movie's taking a lot of heat. A lot of heat. Like, you either love it or you hate it. And I'm not going to really go into the reasons why, you know, all the social media chatter of why people love it or hate it. I'm just going to go ahead and give you my opinion on the movie. I do want to start out with one very simple thing. This is a very, and it, and it is a critique, one very simple thing. And that is that this movie is far too long. Okay, I will say that for, for absolute certain. This movie is far too long. It was two and a half hours long-ish, okay? And then you've got certain scenes, and I'm I'm not talking about certain small scenes. I'm talking about, like, chunks of time that could have easily been omitted from this movie. You could have cut a half hour out of this movie easy and still given me the same product, still giving me the same quality, still giving me the same, you know, essentially all the things that I needed to be able to follow the movie in a half hour shorter's time. I understand that... You know, we don't go by less is more anymore when it comes to movies. We go by more is more. You know, if you can give me everything. I mean, look at the the Zack Snyder's Justice League. It's going to be four hours long. I realize that there's a different reason for that. But at the same time, I mean, you're giving me something that's two and a half hours long, and it made it slow. It did. In the beginning, I thought it was very slow. I got the idea right away about pretty much... All the characters. You get the idea of where Diana's head's at, you know, the, what, the life that she's been living and the fact that she's still missing Steve. And, you know, there's still a raw nerve there, especially when she's talking to Barbara when they go out to dinner. You kind of get a sense of who Barbara is. And I'll get to trust me, I will get to Barbara Minerva a little bit later on in this review. You also you, you know who Maxwell Lord is from the beginning of this movie. D- different from the comics. Sure. Yeah, they took some liberties with Maxwell Lord. And I don't mind the liberties that they took either, by the way. But you, you get a, a sense of an idea of who he is. You know he wants this wishing stone. You, you pretty much know what he wants to use it for. You don't know exactly how he's going to use it or anything, but you know you get to that at a certain point, and I think they could have gotten to that a little bit faster. 
as a matter of fact. I thought that they could have gotten there quicker because you knew what he was doing. They, they set this up pretty easily, like the scene in the office with his with his son. And you see how it's an, it's it's empty. He's got that investor that comes and yells at him and tells him, you know, you're, you're wasting my money. You're a loser. You're a con man sort of thing. And, he's, and his son sees that, and you see how that affects Max Lord. So you know what he's going to use this wishing stone for. I didn't need any more basis for that. And how he gets it? I mean, okay, I, I see how you could do that. But at the same time, that also took way too long. But I, I, lo- I do really like this, the way that they set up the wishing stones aspect of this and how it affected each character and what it, especially what it did to Diana too, right? Because when you set up the fact that she's got to renounce her wish of having Steve back... That was a very powerful moment because they, you also give us, and one of the best parts of this movie was those were those character moments between Steve and Diana. And I'm not talking about when they're trying to figure out what Max Lord's up to and what this wishing stone actually is. I'm talking about those intimate character moments between the two of them that just makes you, just reminds you of why their relationship is so special and why it worked so well and this is something that and and that also sets up that scene later on where Diana's like why can't I have this one thing she knows that the world needs her and that's important to her but she's like why can't I just have this one thing where you know she basically gives so much of herself why can't she have this one thing why can't she have the love of her life and I I thought that that they set those moments up beautifully the best parts about this movie are Steve and Diana. No question about that. Even the beginning, I actually thought that the opening scene of the movie was great too because you also, that sets up the whole storyline about the truth being having the power. Like when Diana says, the lasso doesn't have the power, the truth is the power and the truth is what matters most and that is what we get and that actually sets up why she ends up, well, one of the reasons why she ends up renouncing her wish in the first place and, and even how... Everybody else ends up renouncing theirs because it's not real. It's not, it's, this is not a reality. And look at what all of your wishes are doing to the world sort of thing. So, and, and all that's left is the truth. And that's ultimately, and I know I'm jumping around here, but so does the movie. So I'm going to jump around in this review. So, and I think that that was one of the more powerful moments about the end. You have a villain in Maxwell Lord, right? And all of the terrible things he does in the name of fame, for lack of a better way of putting it, to just be somebody. And you understand why, you understand how he got to the way he did. Because, you know, especially, you know, for somebody like me that was picked on growing up, and maybe you were as well, you know, you understand how he can get to that point, right? Where it's like, it's my turn, right? I've suffered my in my entire life. It's my turn, right? But, you know, most of us wouldn't take it to the lengths that he did. But then... It's his relationship with his son that ultimately brings him back, whereas he basically can't be stopped because this wishing stone is so powerful, and he is the wishing stone at this point. So Diana knows she can't stop him with any, you know, she can't beat him down. She can't, there's nothing she could do. All she can do is, a, is take his power away by appealing to others and appealing to him, and when he ultimately saves his son, I thought that that was a major moment. Usually you don't get villains that redeem themselves in the same movie, but he does in what he does with his son. And when his son says, I already love you, daddy, that that just, that, that one hit me. That one hit me hard 
because that was, you know, somebody with two sons. You know, I know what I know what that feels like. And that was a great moment. Now, should he still pay for what he did? Absolutely. And he kind of doesn't, which I thought was interesting, right? Like, does Diana just give him a pass? Because that's what it seems like. You don't see him get punished. You don't see him go to jail at the end of this movie, right? As far as I remember anyway. So should he still be punished for what he's done? Yeah, but I, I, I don't know. Maybe Diana feels like he's suffered enough. Maybe it's not her decision. I don't know, because remember, she's kind of operating incognito as Wonder Woman, in this movie, you know, she kind of wraps things up before the cops get there so they don't see her sort of thing in the in the beginning in that mall scene. So maybe, you know, it's just not her decision to make and she just sort of lets him go, which I thought was very, very interesting. I didn't hate that moment. I still think he should, you know, he should have paid the price for what he did to the world. But at the same time, you know, I also didn't hate that, you know, he redeemed himself in a way. Well, I, I, he didn't necessarily fix anything per se, but, you know, he just sort of, he just sort of, you know, went on his way and, and decided to be with his son instead. So I, I didn't hate that part of it. I, I really, really didn't. I also, but here's the other thing. I kind of think that I, I've got mixed feelings on Kristen Wiig's Barbara Ann Minerva because, I mean, they, they brought out the, you know, you know, the nerdy aspect, the, 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 the goofy aspect of her a little bit in this, and and again, I know that there's 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 precedent for that in the comics, okay? But I, I guess part of it for me is it's clouded because I saw what they did with Barbara Ann in Greg Rucka, Liam Sharp, and Nicholas, Nicholas Scott's Wonder Woman run, and they added such depth to that character and to that relationship between Barbara and Diana, and, and Diana's not the greatest friend in the world. But, you know, at the same time, I, I've seen that criticism. But at the same time, does she know how to be? You know what I mean? Like, especially with, with, with women, as crazy as that sounds for somebody who grew up in Themyscira, you know, Themyscira is a very, while it is a, a loving place, it's also a very competitive place. So what, what Diana learns is how to be competitive with women, not necessarily befriend them. Right. And if you remember the first Wonder Woman movie, the only real friend that she had was I mean, there was only one other female in that movie. Right. It was Etta, as far as I remember. So and or, or I don't quite remember exactly who it was because that was, you know, what, four or five years ago. Anyway, that, that's not the point. The point is, is that she doesn't necessarily know how to be a friend to a female. So she's kind of a crappy friend. And that kind of leads Barbara down the same path of Max Lord in that, you know, it's my turn now. You know, it's my turn to have the power. You know, you're you're pretty, you get everything you want, and now I have the power. And I think, you know, and that kind of cheapened her a little bit because that's like, that's almost like a stereotypical, you know, female beef of a female that's not, you know, stunningly beautiful. And I'm sure that but that, and I'm saying that because that's how they played her up in the movies. She looked, Kristen Wiig looked stunning in plenty of scenes, and and she, it's. I'm not saying that Kristen Wiig is not an attractive woman, so don't at me for any of this stuff. I'm just going by what they sh- gave us in this movie, right? Like Kristen Wiig basically felt like she will, she would never be Diana, so her wish was to have her power so she could be, sort of thing, right? So. She does that and doesn't want to give it back because she thinks she she wants to be the better woman, right? She finally wants to be the woman that everybody chooses for once. 
And I thought, and and on one hand, I get that, and on the other hand, I'm like, that's a cop out because we've seen that a million times before. A and B, there's so much more depth to this character, and her choosing to be Cheetah was another one where I'm like, you know, she struggles and suffers because she's Cheetah in so many other stories in the comics, and yet this is what she chose for herself. And she could have still been an apex predator without being a cheetah. And you, they don't really build sort of any sort of foundation of her really having this great love for cheetahs either or anything like that. And again, that would have been kind of cheesy. But at the same time, I flip that coin and I go, you know what? At least they went more practical with the effects for the cheetah, for the look when you finally get to see cheetah. At least they went a little bit more practical than they did... CGI, or at least it looked really good, okay? Whatever they did, it looked really good. It looked more true to life than a CGI cheetah, which would have, I mean, would have looked great, right? If you went full-on CGI with it, it probably would have looked amazing. But that humanity that Diana was trying to appeal to in her would not have made sense if you did that. So that making it look more human and making it look more practical made that scene make sense, and it sold that scene, okay? So I understand why they did that. So if you've got a problem with the look, I, I, again, I get it, but at the same time, it wouldn't have, as parts of the movie wouldn't have made sense if you went full CGI, and I actually think that the look was fine. I, I love the movement. I love the choreography, the fight scenes, not just in that scene, but in the entire movie, I thought the, the fight choreography was very good. I thought the action, even though there wasn't as much of it, was excellent, and here's the other thing. First of all, and I'm going to round this out here. And I already said how amazing Steve Trevor was and Chris Pine. Chris Pine makes the humor in this movie work so much. And that's a testament to him. It really is. Because that's that's who he is and, and what he brings to his stories that he's in. Gal Gadot is amazing. Again, as Diana. I'm sorry. She is. She She is Wonder Woman. She absolutely is. And there are plenty of callback moments in this movie that that they set something up in the beginning and then at the end they bring it all home right they do so and that is and that has a lot to do with Diana's heritage and the way Gal Gadot portrays it but here's the thing this is a movie that from the very beginning that all they told us was and and when by they I say anyone involved with Wonder Woman 1984 they said this was this was a fun movie it was such a fun movie to make. It was such a fun movie to do. The word you heard a thousand times in a thousand different ways was fun. Even the trailers were portrayed as fun. And that's what this movie is. This is a fun movie. They were never going to capture the magic of that first movie. I'm sorry. They weren't. And they knew that. So what they decided to do was go out and make a fun movie. Did they, was, it, was it an 80s movie? It actually felt like... An 80s movie, not a movie that was set in the 80s. It felt like an 80s movie, quite frankly. It was almost like a throwback. And whether you love that or you didn't, that's kind of up to you. But I didn't feel like... I, I saw the uh, more criticisms were that it was nostalgia-laden. I didn't feel like it really was, other than the clothing and, and a couple of other things here and there. I, I didn't feel like it was nostalgia-laden. I thought that they set the stage for it being in the 80s, but I didn't feel like there was like nostalgia in your face all over the place and a couple of scenes, you know, you poke fun in a couple of things, but that's what you do when in movies that are set at a different time. Right. So I feel like it was, it was enough, right? It was just enough. It wasn't a ton, but it was just enough that, that was, that was my feeling about it. Anyway, I didn't think they overdid it 
at all. But this was a fun movie with one one villain who had a great story arc in Maxwell Lord. I thought they did a great job, and Pedro Pascal was was did a fantastic job at bringing out the character that was put before him. Okay, whether or not you like this portrayal of Max Lord or not, he did a fantastic job at putting out the character that was put before him, and I actually kind of like what they did with Max Lord. As an origin story for Cheetah, again, I wish they'd gone a different way. I wish they'd added more depth to it, but it's hard to hate what they did and how they brought it about. I just thought it was a little bit, you know, like they could have gone a different way, like they could have given any different angle other than something that we've seen a ton. But again, I don't think Kristen Wiig did a bad job, again, with with what she was given. I don't think she did a terrible job. I, I just think that that is a character that could have done better. But overall, this movie was a fun movie. And then I won't, the one thing I won't spoil is the mid credit scene. Now, I will say that it, it does involve, and this is the one thing I will spoil, it does involve Linda Carter. Okay, that much I will tell you. It involves Linda Carter, and we find out that she's a very specific character in this Wonder Woman universe, the, the DC extended universe, as it was. And does this set up a third movie, the third movie that we now know we're going to be getting? Maybe because Diana says that she's been looking for this certain someone in this movie. And maybe that's something that she's going to explore in a third movie. We'll have to go ahead and wait and see. But again, I, I didn't I'm not going to give this a specific like number rating or anything like that because I don't really do that anymore. But I think that this is a fun movie. This is a movie I'm definitely glad that I saw. And it's one of those movies that it it's it's not going to be one of the best movies that DC's ever put out, but it's going to be one of those fun movies that if it's on TV, you're probably not going to turn it off because while you know it wasn't a perfect movie, it was still a heck of a lot of fun and you love Chris Pine and you love Gal Gadot as those characters. So yeah, I I can tell you that even if you didn't like this movie or you say you didn't now, you're going to end up watching it again and you're probably going to have a different opinion of it. That's just my take on this whole thing. This week, the Down and Nerdy Podcast is once again brought to you by the Faraway Collection, Amazon Original Stories. And yeah, it's basically, it gives you something different in all five stories. You get, you know, maybe something wicked, something charming, something scary, and something new. That is the point of these stories, something new. You've got five fairy tales retold for adults, and they actually take things in very different directions. As a matter of fact, one of those five stories comes from Gail Foreman, and it's called The Wicked's. And it's basically, you take the villainesses of Snow White, Cinderella, and Rapunzel, and they set the record straight. Let me, I'll just put it that way. I'm not going to spoil anything else. But that's what they do. They set the record straight. And it's, it's a funny story. It, it's, it's, it's almost like a tongue-in-cheek sort of thing, but it's definitely a different take on stories that you already know. And if you go to Amazon.com slash faraway stories, you will find that in all five of these stories. What you'll also find is a little prime symbol. It means if you're a prime member, you can read or listen to these stories absolutely free. If you want to own them forever, it's a very affordable price for all five tales too, by the way, even if you're not a prime member. So you get these evil queens, charmless princes, and star-crossed lovers either for a low price or free if you're a prime member and you can take it with you 
wherever you go and wherever you want to listen. So let me tell you this. If you want something that is very modern and very different when it comes to fairy tales that you already love, you are going to love the Faraway Collection from Amazon Original Stories at Amazon.com slash Faraway Stories. Hey, that'll do it for my spoiler-filled review of Wonder Woman 1984. Up next, one of my next top interview moments of 2020, and we'll keep those moving next. I'm James Witham, and this is the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hi, everyone. This is artist Nicholas Scott, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Back to our best interview moments of 2020, and one of my favorite shows of the past year actually was Lock and Key on Netflix. Got a chance to talk to a couple of members of the cast of that show. But one of my favorite moments when I was talking to Lace de Oliveira, who plays Dodge, and you know how much I loved Dodge on Lock and Key. So I had to ask her, does Dodge think she's the villain? And I just love the way she answered this question. Give it a listen. I mean, obviously Dodge is the villain of the series, but do you think she feels like she's the villain or is it something else? I think she knows she's the villain. You know, the great thing about Dodge is, of course, we, we don't know too much of her backstory yet, but we do know that she is an Echo and she's decided to be in this human form. So she's just having fun with her physical appearance. She's having fun being bad. She's having fun not having to answer to anybody. And she knows what she wants, which are the keys. And she wants to get to this black door and she'll stop at nothing. And she has fun. She has fun manipulating people and she gets a little angry when she doesn't get her way, mm-hmm. but that's really fun too. <laughs> this is April Goldie from DC's Doom Patrol, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. In case you forgot, there was a bit of an anniversary in 2020. The Joker celebrated 80 years, and so did DC Comics with a big, big special release. And when I got to talk about that with Paul Dini, who was also one of the co-creators of Harley Quinn, I thought it was a unique opportunity to ask him about the relationship between Harley and the Joker and how it's been perceived by fans and stuff like that. Hear what he had to say. Of course, Paul, you are one of the co-creators of Harley Quinn with you yourself and Bruce Tim. And speaking of mm-hmm. Joker and Harley, it seems like there are fans that have kind of a very different interpretation of their relationship, depending on who you talk to. So as someone who was there from the beginning, how would you describe their relationship and how it's evolved over time? Well, I don't think anybody expected it to last. I mean, it's, <laughs> nope. uh, no, that would be pretty sad if um, 30 years later she's still following him around and uh, taking orders and everything. To me, Harley was always an interesting character in that she represented at the time that we created her somebody who didn't believe in herself very much on a certain level and yet found some sort of validation in loving this this person and i think i was inspired by uh, a number of things like what would make a person want to be with somebody like that and part of it was by reading letters from people had written to people in prison who said who might be writing to a mass murderer and saying I understand you, I love you, you're not the bad person that they say. And I thought, what if they, you know, and that was part of the thought process with Harley and the Joker is like, what if she was one of those people? And early on, she was pretty much just a hench person who was part of his gang. But even then we were thinking like, who would follow along after somebody like this? And what if we put that in, in her backstory? And then the more we worked on it, the more we came up with the idea that she was a therapist and everything, and that gave it a, a, a really dark twist to it that he had reached into the mind of somebody who was trying to help him 
and then twisted him. And the way that that story kind of worked was if Harley uh, or Harlene Quinzel wanted something out of him first, which was if she was ambitious. And from the inception, she was not a terribly nice person. She was a bit of a schemer and a user, and she looked at the chance to get into, uh, you know, I'm going to be a, a pop psychiatrist and I'm going to, you know, make a, a reputation. And uh, she was into it sort of for the wrong things, you know, helping people at some point. But at, at, the, at, at one level, the Joker, you know, saw her coming and, you know, set a trap for her. And there's no doubt in my mind that some of the things he told her were true. It's just that, you know, he, his, his life is a combination of different events. And I think ultimately he'll say what he has to in order to get what he wants. He's the ultimate narcissist in that way. So if he, if he's act caring toward her, he can be for a moment. But then, you know, whatever else he wants, you know, supersedes that. And then he'll just as easily fling her under a bus until he gets what he wants. And he'll come back. And if he has some use for her, he'll, you know, sweet talk her and she'll come running back. Not anymore. I don't think. Right. I think the um, the uh, relationship is 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 pretty much gone for good as far as that goes, because she's seen the other side. There is no good to him. There's just this narcissist. I mean, she's a smart woman. And I, I'm very happy that we've been able to, uh, we meaning pretty much everybody who's worked on the character since then, has taken her from that to uh, to her own place as a, uh, if not a full hero, then a anti-hero with a number of admirable uh, qualities. She was a cautionary story at first about what happens when someone loves too much at the risk of loving, you know, they don't love themselves enough, but they look at somebody else as saying, this is the magic person who can fit me, who can fix me. And in her case, it's the worst person in the world. But that's, you know, it was a story of obsessive love and the terrible consequences. And as a result, Harley's become very popular. And so she's moved on and is uh, healthier and happier, I think. This is writer Stephanie Phillips, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy podcast. One of the most talked about shows this year for a lot of different reasons was Batwoman and all the turmoil that happened with that show. But let's face it, it had a great first season, at least I thought it did. So I got a chance to talk to Cameras Johnson about playing Luke Fox on the show, but that's not the only character I wanted to talk to him about. Hardcore comic book fans like myself have been wondering whether or not we'll see Batman at some point. (laughs) So let's put it this way. Do you think about that, and or does that kind of seem pretty far off at this point? I think it seems pretty far off, but at the same time, it it seems like it's around the corner. So it, it's hard to say. Um, Batwing is such a, an amazing, pivotal character um, to the DC Universe, especially the new DC Universe. And it looks like becoming Batwing is one huge reason that I wanted this part, and I knew that I had to get this part, is because I want to play that character so bad. But the thing about Batwing is... Luke Fox is an amazing character. He is a strong, genius, uh, young black man that is like how Static Shock used to do for me when I was a kid, teach young black kids that it's okay to be a young black nerd. Uh, That's okay. You shouldn't be ashamed to be a young black nerd. Um, So I think Luke Fox is giving that to people right now. And Batwing, although he's an amazing hero and persona, Batwing and Luke Fox, although they are the same, they're sort of two different people. Uh, whenever Luke Fox puts on the suit, he is Batwing. Whenever the suit is off, he's Luke Fox. I think that we need to fall in love with Luke a little bit more, learn more about who Luke is, uncover all the layers to this onion that we can before the next layer requires the suit. And once we've acquired the suit, then that's a whole other chapter of Luke Fox's life. So I think we need to earn that 
and get to that point where we deserve that hero. Obviously, I want to play Batwing right now. I want to play, of course. I want to play Batwing <laughs> yesterday, you know, more than anything. But I also know that um, I want to see as much Luke as I can before Batwing comes about. Because when Batwing comes, it's all about Batwing. And I want Luke Fox to get the shot that he deserves. Yo, yo, this is Cam Rush Johnson from the cast of Batwing. You are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. For a lot of reasons, one of my favorite villains this year was Icicle from DC's Stargirl. I mean, he, he was a villain, but then he kind of wasn't, then he was. And there's a lot of there was a lot of different ways to look at that. So before the finale for Stargirl this year, I got a chance to talk to Neil Jackson, who plays uh, Jordan McKent, Icicle, on the show. And I got to ask him about some of the other performances that he liked from the show. And we got to actually talking about his roommate, while they were filming, check it out. I've talked to several members of the cast this season, Angelica Washington, Trey Romano, Nelson Lee. They all told me the same thing. They say that Neil's such a nice guy, and it's amazing to see him kind of transform into this icicle character. So is there anyone on set that you worked with this season that you were kind of amazed to watch them transform into their character? Yeah, several people. I mean, we're really blessed on this show to have some incredible, incredible actors. And... Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm dear friends with Nelson. Me, me and Nelson have been close friends for like um, 15 years, maybe. He plays Dragon King. And his first scene as Dragon King in, in this show was a scene with Jordan. And it's so fun watching him, and he's an amazing actor. But when he becomes Dragon King, he has a normal register in his voice normally. But suddenly he drops down into this thing and becomes so creepy. Same with uh, Chris Baker. I lived with Chris Baker, who plays Brainwave while we were in Atlanta filming. So the two of us shared an apartment together that we called The Lair. Um, nice. And we'd sit after work, have a couple of gins on the balcony and just put the world to rights, which was great. It was actually funny. I was I was back in Britain shooting um, Kingsman, this new film that's coming out in September. And so I was kind of darting back and forth for the, the initial month or so of filming Stargirl. And I came back the first time and... Um, arrived into the lair and uh, Chris said, hey, check out your bathroom. I was like, why? And he said, I've, I've got you a shower curtain because there wasn't one. I walked in and the shower curtain was a tableau from the film Frozen. Awesome. And then I went into his bathroom <laughs> and his shower curtain was just a large brain. So he had this large brain with equations over it. I was like, that's amazing. But watching him, who was a very fun, lighthearted, very sarcastic person, suddenly become Brainwave, who is the epitome of sort of commitment to the cause and he's so sinister he he is phenomenal so yeah watching everybody kind of dip in meg who is just sweet and light but she becomes shiv and you kind of she becomes the ultimate b-i-t-c-h you know she's everyone has a fantastic arc and and uh, it's been really fun watching the work that everyone's been doing hey this is angelic washington from dc star girl and you're listening to down and nerdy podcast so this is it, our final stop on the best interview moments of 2020 here on the Down and Nerdy podcast. And it's going to be a conversation that I have with April Boldly, who cosplays Rita Farr on DC's Doom Patrol, which is now on HBO Max, by the way. And one of the things I asked her, because a lot of the story of this past season was about, you know, Rita becoming a superhero, wanting to become a superhero. So I asked her what she thinks being a superhero means to Rita and the passion in her answer, I loved it. Check it out. It's funny that you mentioned her wanting to be a superhero because of course we saw in the trailers that she's kind of working with Vic a little bit 
and maybe doing a little bit of training. So what do you think being a hero actually means to her? Oh, my gosh, that's such a, a good question. I think Rita thinks a hero is someone who can be outside of herself. I think she wants to not be so self-involved. And so she's looking outside of herself, like, how can she help? How, who can she save? How does she participate in this life? Because not participating didn't work. She did that for a long time and she was still miserable. So there's got to be a switch and a change. So I think for her, a superhero is someone who can help and create relationships and make things better. I hope. <laughs> we'll see. I won't spoil anything for you, but yeah, we do get to see. So make sure you're watching DC's Doom Patrol on HBO Max Seasons 1 and 2, actually, if you're not caught up on the show yet. But that's going to do it for this week's edition of the Best of 2020 Interview Moments of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. And, of course, my review of Wonder Woman 1984. I'm sure that I'm going to hear from you guys about that. But, I mean, if, if one of your favorite interviews wasn't a part of this show, you can always go to downandnerdypodcast.com to relive them. Make sure you're subscribing to the show. Make sure you're liking the show on social media as well, at downandnerdy757 on Twitter and on Instagram, and at downandnerdy on Facebook. I want to hear from you guys. There's going to be some changes coming up in 2021 that I'm really excited about. Going to be doing some stuff with some charitable organizations I'm really, really excited about. I hope you guys will help support that as well. Some big things coming in. I I always end this show by saying thank you. And I've been doing this now. This will be the seventh year of the Down and Nerdy podcast in 2021. And that doesn't happen without you guys. And supporting our sponsors, which is something that, that, that I've asked you to do recently. And make sure you support this week's sponsor, the Faraway Collection from Amazon Original Stories, Amazon.com slash Faraway Stories. And and you guys have done that. You've you've gone out, you've supported the sponsors, you've supported the show. Whether you're a longtime listener or you just found the show this year, I sincerely mean this when I say it. Thank you so much for allowing me to do this because without you guys, there, there's no great guests on the show and, and there were so many this year. There's so many things that I can't do without you guys. So I appreciate you so, so much and the fact that you're still going to be supporting the show in 2021. I can't wait to bring so many amazing things to you in 2021 and thank you so much for your support and remember you never have to apologize for being a nerd so let your fan flag fly and be good to your fellow nerds